This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. For more than 40 years, Helix Education's enrollment growth solutions, including outsourced program management, enrollment marketing, and retention services, have helped colleges and universities successfully find, enroll, retain, teach, and graduate post-traditional learners. To learn more about how data can drive your institution's enrollment growth, visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. Hello and welcome to the latest Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. Happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Hooray. Day. Hooray. The non-Irish person. Whoa, That's right. the non-Irish person here. We, uh, we figured with a Carrie and a Kelly on the podcast, we better better fulfill our obligations. Andrew, what are we What's drinking? What's your middle name? Huh? Daniel. Daniel. Okay. Yeah. I'm Patrick. Yeah. Oh my God, um, that is... That we're is drinking amazing. Red Breast, um, 12-year Irish whiskey. It is oh, the man, good stuff. Good. The best yeah. Irish whiskey that you can buy, in my opinion. Better than Middleton, very rare. Not by price, mind you, but by taste. I, I have a question. Yes. This is a stupid question. Can yeah. someone tell me like where what makes Irish whiskey different on the whiskey spectrum? Um, it's only filtered once. So okay. I went to the Jameson went to the Jameson factory distillery when I went to Ireland. Um, and they had a long, I did too. I they was drunk. A, yeah. <laughs> you know, it somehow it seemed fine though. We drove too. And I was like, I, like that part of my brain that in America would never do that. I'm like, I think this is cool. Um, and, uh, yeah. So as they explain, first of all, they're very, very resentful of the fact that scotch is like became a thing. Right. You know, and, and scotch, I guess is filtered twice. I was uh, going to ask the difference. Yeah. The difference between Irish and scotch is one. I think Irish whiskey is, has kind of a sweeter taste to it. Mm-hmm. Scotch is way peaty and yeah. smoky. Not, not, and smoky. All, not all scotch, not all hashtag, not all scotch, but right. really that is only one, one variety yeah. of scotch. There are four varieties that are not peaty. Um, and then of course there's, you know, Catholic Irish whiskey and Protestant Irish whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait, really? And sure, Bushmills. Bushmills Bush Bush is oh Northern Ireland. So <laughs> don't ever serve Bushmills to someone from Ireland proper or vice versa. It's or, a Protestant whiskey. Yeah, it's a Protestant whiskey. Yeah. That's a line from The Wire, I believe. That's right. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah. Uh, the Jameson Distillery is great because it is in like a dodgier part of, not quite dodgy, but like it's one of those streetscapes when you walk out and you're like, feel you're, like, you're in Billy Elliot or something. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like all these no, like row right. houses and. Um, it's a cool. That's a cool tour. And then sure. the, the 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 premium whiskey is Middleton, very rare, mm-hmm. which comes in a cost like 120 bucks and comes in a wooden casket. But so you're saying this is better though? I like I I'm I can't remember. I believe I've had Middleton, um, but I like this like compared to like Jameson 18 year, which is mm-hmm. more expensive than this, as All I right. recall. Yeah. Um, I like this better, but they're both really good. Yeah. No, I have a I have a bottle at home. I agree. Um, let's see. So, uh, I ran my marathon over the weekend. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> I did rock and roll marathon. Oh my God. The well, whole thing. I ran the first 18 miles and traversed the last eight <laughs> miles of the marathon, but I did finish it. So Congratulations. Um, I wish I, I know I was out. I would have seen, I probably did see you, but I wasn't looking oh, for well, you. I was in the big pack of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was an experience. I'd do how, it again. What's your, what's the, ver- you would do it again? Yeah, yeah I do it again. Huh. I mean, I mean, so I ran, I told you guys I ran into sort of uh, foot problems. So I kind of, I missed the last six weeks of training, which is, which is when you do all the long runs. So I sort of stayed in shape. I like doing exercise bike and other stuff. But it turns out you do all those long runs for a reason. <laughs> so that when you get to 18 miles, your legs don't sort of shut down from fatigue, which is sort of what happened to me. Yeah. But, uh, you know. That's I pretty good to make it I, 18 miles. Yeah, that's amazing. I got it out the last eight. Hearing yeah. that right now, I just can't. It's making my stomach turn. Yeah. I don't know. It was it was fun. So it was, uh, I do it again. I feel I, like I can do it faster. Have time? I've done halves and really like them. And like right. every so often I'll finish a half marathon and be like, you know what would be fun? I'm on this runner's high. Like I yeah. should do it. But like the time commitment in terms of the amount of time you have to devote to running well, is so much bigger. You than only I've just have to do, to do one long run a week. Mm-hmm. To, so it's just like, you just have to like keep your Sunday mornings free. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you just do that yeah. and, and get up early and get out there at like seven. I mean, even the longest run is like a three hour run. I, so, I keep yeah. my Sunday mornings free to read the paper. Though. Yeah, there's. Yeah. A, I mean, there's just a big difference <laughs> yeah. between like the longest run for a, a half is usually like 11. I've done 12 ones. Like a two hour run to, yeah. for me would be a four hour run because I suspect you're faster than me. Like, that's that a fast. lot of time. I mean, you can only you can only run so slow, right? Do you <laughs> listen to music or podcasts? Yeah, or yeah. yeah. I, I did for a while, though. Sometimes it's kind of nice to just have some time when you you're unable to distract yourself from whatever. So yeah, podcasts and stuff. So. So I did that. Um, Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Um, the Americans premiered last night on FX at 10 o'clock. Uh, longtime podcast listeners, um, because of course the Americans hasn't been on in a while, No, um, We are those TV snobs on your Twitter feed or your Facebook account who look down on you for not watching the Americans. If you don't watch it, or if you do, then welcome to the club of smart people. Um, or if you, you also 
uh, look down on people who started out watching it religiously, but then stopped watching it because they had a child and they had no less excuse. time. I, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I know. That's yeah. me, though. We're ostracizing. We're ostracizing. It's fine. You're yeah, othering me. That's fine. Yeah, it was good. It was... Uh, um, it's good because we 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 were going to record this podcast yesterday, but Washington D.C. shut its metro system down for 24 hours because it was so unsafe. Apparently, 29 hours. 29 hours. Um, on, and it turns out it was in fact horrifically unsafe on the stops that I take in every day. So I guess I'm glad they did it. Um, I'm disturbed. Like, did you see the video on, of the like exposed cables on TV? I saw a picture of it. So, so I, I, like, I don't understand the system in which it wasn't discovered until until now. <laughs> it was but, literally out there. Yeah. I, don't, um, I understand nothing about Metro. If we can have a very, very special episode of, like, why Metro was bad would mm. be... But your, your sister is, a, a, is a, a, a Metro reporter in Los Angeles, right? She is, yeah. Okay, she, covers so. all, she covers all transportation in Los Angeles, which mostly involves, as far as I can tell, doing a lot of yelling about how, no, there are other ways to get around and people don't only drive. Other than the interstate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Does she like the movie L.A. Story? Okay. She seen it before i assume she has there's I'm an amazing not. scene in la story where he gets out of his house and he gets in the car and he drives like two houses down yeah, yeah. And this is, out. It's this is and he sits in traffic in between <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah um so uh so it means we get to talk about the americans briefly we're not going to spoil it because andrew hasn't seen it um the americans is great it was kind of a table setting episode mm-hmm. i feel like now libby who is in the even more privileged privileged cast of people who get to see screeners ahead of time because she works for a publication that has uh, uh, pop culture people who get this in purpose. You just need a TV think tank. I don't. Okay. I don't see the problem here. Right. Like, <laughs> I bet I could just fake one, right? They would send it to me. I could just sure. like have have my the web TV people institute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yes, exactly. That. Yeah, yeah. The, the for like you know better, smarter. I'm gonna actually do that. Just more to technocratic get, just television. But yeah, things are. I think things are going to go the, as Andrew was saying before we started. The previews suggest that this is the season where everything really starts to fall apart, which I think it kind of has to. I don't think that they could sustain the tension for another season. I think it has to fall apart. I think there need to be no more than two or three more seasons, and then the story has to end. I think there's only one more. I don't know. I mean, from my my Twitter feed of people who are being superior about watching The Americans last night, either seems, seems to have really soared. So either people have caught on, or I've uh, adjusted who I follow accordingly. Um, I don't think this is a major spoiler. This season does a really interesting thing with time, where so far of the ones I've seen, which is not very many, it is basically like one continuous time block. It picks up exactly where three left off. Um, If they were Mad Men, this would be like a horrible spoiler and someone would descend on me and murder me, but I I don't think anyone cares. Um, And I think that sort of contributes to the idea that like things are like so literally at their boiling point that they cannot skip a week or skip two weeks and come back in. Like it's um, Interesting. Yeah, that's that's... That's a good, that's usually a good harbinger that you're like mm. near the end of a good series, yeah. right? Like It kind of, it, it reminded me a little bit of the later uh, seasons of Battlestar Galactica. Do you guys, Galactica? Yes? No? No? no. no. Both look, shaking your head. Okay. down on us. That's fine. Galactica is fantastic. Uh, I mean, it turned out to be a little bit of a, an anomaly. It was sort of this like early 2000s sci-fi show that was great. But then sci-fi hasn't had any great shows since then. And the people who made it haven't made any shows nearly as good. Galactica is an awesome show. Uh, it's totally rewatchable. But it's essentially a war story, right? And so the, the, the Cylons show up in, the, in like the first 10 minutes and destroy this planet. And it sends, you know, 1% of humanity is left. And they're in this like flotilla of spaceships trying to get away from the, you know, the murder, murdering robots and find um, their homeland, which is Earth. Because this is, in, in theory, like far in the future. Um, and so the whole thing is kind of going back and forth, but they, they took it very seriously. And like, and one of the themes that sort of really emerged is that if you're a soldier and you fight long enough, like war destroys you eventually, like just even, you know, just being a soldier, like makes you do things and makes you sort of be in an environment that will like crush anyone. And I really sort of feel like, you know, the Americans very much presents these two people as soldiers in the cold war and it's just killing them. I mean, it's killing them as, as, as much as they try to sort of like come up with some sort of moral structure that allows them to put one step in front of the other. They can't. Yeah, I think it's like this is very much a season that feels like it's going to be about reckoning. And they sort of set the table for that at the end of the third season um, with all of these secrets sort of coming out and then like where it goes from here. I'm spoiling it for the people who eventually binge watch the show, but like <laughs> you were the you were the reason there's probably right. only one more season left. Yeah. So, I, so I don't feel to bad. Hell with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I did. Like, it would be so great. It would be so great to, like, find the show and binge watch it, like, yeah. you know, a few years from now. But I've been with yeah. it since, like, season one. And well, you sort of, like, it has, like, it has the, like, um, it has the benefit of almost being, it's sort of 
like the X Files or like Sons of Anarchy, in that in that there are like these grander storylines, but then every episode has like individual storylines mm-hmm. that could be like little things yeah. that blip and are their own self-contained mm-hmm. kind of deal. It's, you know, it's, it is destined to be a Friday Night Lights kind of show, which is a show that I I did not watch, even mm-hmm. though everyone yelled at me to watch it. Same. Binge watched it afterwards Same. and then felt mm-hmm. guilty. I watched I it like every Friday. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you get yeah. the yeah. all right. We found my the wife way and I, my wife and I in graduate when I was in graduate school. Well, then you have your own you have your own high horse to be on. Night yeah, no, oh, I took awesome. it all. I watched it all over the course of like nine months. And, um, uh, all right, so I guess we should talk about higher education. Yeah, so this um, has been a fun episode of We Talk um, About Stuff. Right. Um, so we're going to start by picking up the the conversation we had last time, which was um, sort of began with a discussion of a proposal that we at New America put out to completely change the entire federal financial aid system, get rid of Pell Grants, get rid of student loans, get rid of tax credits, convert, throw an extra $40 billion into the mix and convert it into a huge new federal program of direct grants to states and colleges, um, but only if states and colleges agree to um, uh, act in a way consistent with certain national goals of access and completion in higher education, to wit, colleges have to agree to both enroll a certain number of low-income students and not charge any students more than the uh, federally determined cost of attendance, um, as well as be subject to certain kinds of baseline accountability measures. Um, so uh, it remains a fantastic idea, in my opinion, but others may differ. It has um, withstood the test. It has withstood two the and test of time. Weeks, yes. Four weeks, I guess. That's exactly no. right. Um, so we can pick that it up wherever you guys up. want. Yeah, um, so I have a question we didn't yeah. get to last okay. time. Okay. Yeah, because I talk the most, so you Yeah, talk. no, I, I, I was trying to be polite. You um, dump on Then Kevin. you don't get to talk, so I'll never be polite again. But <laughs> anyway, um, one thing that's – I'm sort of looking at this in kind of a the context of the most recent education thing I really was immersed in was um, the No Child Left Behind rewrite mm-hmm. and sort of this concept of trust states. And even with these, like, couple of national goals, it feels like there is a lot of trusting states going on here as far as using the money wisely, using it the way you want it to. I mean, how does that tension fit in to this rubric? Sure. And I, th- I mean, I, I, in some ways, my answer is similar to Andrew's questions about, like, uh, the financial side of this, right, which is, well— Tell me if I'm wrong, but part of your question was, well, next time there's a recession, like, you know, the governors are just going to pull their money out and you're not going to take their money away. Like, if you say you are, that's a lie. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's part it, of it. It never actually happens. So, you know, our position is that these, starting where we are now, um, states have complete autonomy, right? So there's nothing about the current system that in any way prevents them and arguably basically encourages them by default to play fast and loose both on the financial side and the quality side. And we've seen it happen in Louisiana over the la- since our last podcast. Um, this, the Louisiana legislature has been trying to deal with a, the horrible fiscal legacy that Bobby Jindal left them, that and the decline in gas and, and oil prices, um, by trying to close a huge deficit for this fiscal year, the one that ends like in June of this year. And basically they couldn't work out a deal. And so who ends up taking it on the chin? The Louisiana State University System, which is going to have to, which is basically going to have to absorb a $70 million cut this fiscal year, not next year, the one that's ending, like they're in the middle of this semester. So that is what the current system gives us. There's nothing about, so there is no federal policy structure that even matters for that debate. There's no consideration of, well, we can't cut $70 million because we have this relationship with the federal government that would, that would where that would become a problem. Um, so I guess, you know, our answer is this isn't going to entirely solve that problem, but it is going to move us in a better direction where it's going to start to put some limits, hopefully, on on what states can do. And, and that would be a big improvement. So my other question is um, sort of tied to something I've been thinking a lot about. And hopefully once things are a little bit less crazy at work, we'll get around to writing about and reporting out, which is this like tremendous shift in the de- democratic discourse toward free college in the past couple of years. Yeah. And really what a sea change that is from like when I was really, really immersed in higher ed policy, which was like 2009 to 2014, 15 or so. Um, And it's just been a tremendous change. You guys' cost structure for the students is extremely wonky. Um, Mm. You know, was was there any consideration of like the trade-offs of something very clear versus something that is like 
fairly difficult even for people who understand financial aid to understand. Yeah, we actually we have a whole about a page in the report that that like literally puts that question on the table almost in those terms mm-hmm. and says um, and like references free college and you know ultimately free college is enormously expensive. Mm-hmm. And there's and and we recognize there's only so much money. I mean, our not free college plan still costs forty billion dollars more than the plan we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, and you know, there's only so much money available. There is, I think, a a a, um, a value premise sitting behind it, which is that, um, like, for lack of a better way of saying it, no, college actually shouldn't be free for everybody. Um, it is not a purely public good. Um, that free is a Free as a price is a has an interesting psychological effect on people, like disproportionate to the marginal difference between not free, yeah. even even a little bit not free. Um, and you know, and I know that there's this kind of argument that's persuasive that is made, and in, in your colleague Matt Iglesias um, sort of wrote his column last week. Like I've come around on this. I think Bernie Sanders is right. Um, he's wrong. He should he should have stayed with Iglesias version 2015 and 14 about this. But no, you know, then he changed his mind again. He oh, said did, Bernie's wrong. Yeah, oh, is he back to Bernie's wrong? There's, no, there's a huge flaw in Bernie's plan. And it's oh, that it's not actually opt- free college? No, it's that it's state opt-out. States would opt-out okay. because the match right, well, isn't big enough. And so, so, I mean, there's a lot, there's been a lot of thoughts on this. It's on the this. Social Security argument. Right? Yeah, it was, sort of, it was sort of like right. Bernie's convinced me and yeah. then I re- actually read his proposal. Yes, I think that, that was what it was. Okay, so. And I think, I mean, having had that, it's totally fair having had internal conversations with him even when you were at the first one. Like, it was like, I think this plan, I think this plan is bad. I think free college itself is a... So this is the, this is the social security argument, mm-hmm. right? Which is that that uh, everyone gets social, everyone pays into social security, everyone gets paid social security. Pays in. What's that? Everyone pays in, and everyone gets. Everyone gets it. Everyone pays in, but not everyone gets higher it. education. Right. So well, I'm getting there. Right. So because <laughs> I don't agree because I because I don't agree with this. I know argument. that's what. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to help. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So, I'm making your point before you're making. Yes. Yeah, so everyone pays into social security. Everyone gets social security. Does it really make sense that? You know, Warren Buffett only pays in the first $95,000 of income and will get a check. I, I guess not, but but the fact that it's universal insulates it from politics and people see programs that are for the poor very differently. And they and, um, and so, so Social Security is very simple, it's very universal, and like not coincidentally, it is enormously popular and has basically stood unchanged for the last 70 years. Now, the problem with that, I will say this briefly, but then I'm going to kick it over to Andrew, who can probably explain it in in more and better length, is that, uh, one, I mean, well, the problem is that, like, higher education is not universal. Like, not everyone goes to college, and college going is highly class-implicated. So, like, not only are the rich college students getting a benefit um, that the poor, the same benefit that the poor college students get, but all the college students are getting a benefit that the non-college students are get. And there is no future in which everyone goes to college. There shouldn't be. And so you're really, really kind of upward redistributing resources in a way that just seems inappropriate to me. Yeah. Andrew? Even, even community college? Well, but community colleges, I mean, so like our plan actually would pretty much get fairly close, I think, to free community college. Mm-hmm. If you run the numbers, you know, like the New America plan is like pretty redistributionary toward community colleges if you just look at what its effect would be. Mm-hmm. So I think it would actually be not that different than free community college in its practical effects. Um, so to your point about the system, the system already being extremely regressive, um, this would be this is one of my argument my primary arguments against a sort of institution based funding scheme right is that the system whereby the federal government takes applications from people and says oh you have low income we're going to give you more money is actually more progressive than the state systems now are by by like leaps and bounds right and and so right shifting um um, shifting the, the the system from vouchers to a federal state partnership, it sounds it sounds good, but this but my question is why would states then stop spending sixty cents on the dollar on their lower tier colleges, sure. right? And 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 if they don't, and if they don't, then all the then then you're actually making the system more regressive because you're getting rid of the thing that used to go to the student based on their income. So the answer is uh, broadly. The more low-income students you enroll, the more money you get. So if a state, it would be very, if a state decided the to- The more federal money you get. Right, right. Um, not state money. 
well, the state money kind of is what it is. I mean, nothing about this prevents states from working outside the system to fund their higher education systems however they like, right? Well, yeah, but, but, to, but to Libby's point, right, about trusting the states on a lot of this stuff, right, they've already, they've already shown that they, that they actually flip their system on its head as far as, like, um, the most money going to the most a- the right. schools that serve the most affluent yeah. students. So unless you're going to reverse that, like, so in other words, what you're doing is you're using a big f- spigot of federal money to try and reverse that. Yes. Right? Yep. Where at, where at, but but the Pell Grant program actually does do that as well, right? And it's more targeted than what your money would do. Um, I mean, I don't think any Pell Grant students are worse off than they were. Like, this shift would not be bad for any Pell Grant students. I think it would be better for them, particularly those that go to community colleges. Um, and uh, st- it would be... There are huge sort of structural disincentives to continue to have a regressive allocation because you need to not only enroll low-income students, but you need to keep tuition down for them. And you can't just put them in colleges that are horrible where no one graduates because then you would get caught by the accountability side of things. In theory. Well, I mean, that's the way it's built. Right. So in that theory. Well, yeah, but we've wait, we've built the system so that if you have high default rates, you get kicked out of the system. But, that is, as well, but, but we all know right? that those are really, really weak protections. Yeah, but even but even but even still, like when even when people go run afoul of them, we've built it that way, and then they have even when they run afoul of them, they have all sorts of appeals that they can get out of it. Sure. So so, so I mean, I think our our idea is let's set the bar a lot higher, and then the margins around the political appeals and whatever are at least around a much higher bar. You know, I mean, I'm like I'm not I'm not sort of wishing away theory, politics here. But yeah, I think it's more than politics, though. I think it's actually, I think it's a question of, right, like, if you guys were serious about, if you guys were serious about holding schools to those thresholds, mm-hmm. you would put, you would put many, many public colleges, pub, many, many public colleges would st- cease to exist. They'd have to. Uh, I don't, like, our plan is not a plan for lots of public colleges to cease to exist. I don't think, I don't think you can read that Logically, no, I don't think that's your intent. I don't think that's your intent. Right. But if you're raising, so, but if you're raising the bar, right? We're just setting a bar, basically. I yeah, mean, okay. I mean, there is no bar right now. I mean, I, I, I'm going to say either, that the, but either, but either right. they, but either the government makes good on its commitment to say if you don't hit these targets, we're going to no longer give you any money, right? Or they don't. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So we are. I mean, we are affirmatively saying, currently, the federal system and, and frankly, the state system, there is no bar. But we could do um, that now under the voucher system. Let's be clear. Sure. Yeah. You, you could, we just you could create a new bar and attach it to the voucher system. You could do that. Yes. And we just choose not to. So right. why would this be different? Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know what you mean. Why would it be different? Why would changing the funding from a voucher to whatever this is, which actually it's not really a, it's not really a non-voucher. It's not really just direct funding. It's actually more like a portable funding stream, right? Because a student could take it. A no, I mean, could take their allocation to a different place, right? No, I mean it's it's no because they're guaranteed EFC, right? And so that so that so they're guaranteed EFC at any right. place in the state that that right. that uh, that abides by the program. Mm-hmm. Then that's the that's country, a portable right? situation. Is yes, gone. Yeah. yeah, right. Then that's yeah. a portable. That's a portable. It's almost like a voucher, right? essentially. Yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so I've, I've lost, lost track of what the question so, is. So, so, so my question is, why would that policy design lead us to? Why should that policy design lead us to be more confident in our ability? To hold institutions accountable than than the than the current one. Well, the current one, there isn't an accountability system, right? So, so I think the question you're asking is, why is this better than keeping the voucher system but actually having accountability to go with it? Is that the question? I think in part, I think no, I, I think it's largely no. It's actually slightly different, right? Which is which is I think implied in New America's in in your plan and in actually in others, not just yours, is that changing. So right now the implied, the, the implication is the voucher mo- in the voucher model, we rely on students to discipline providers by voting with their feet. Correct. Classic market theory. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of reasons that doesn't happen. Right. So therefore in order to do it better and harder, right, we, we can fund the institutions through the States or not directly. And then we can tell them what to do. And then we can stop them from getting the money if they don't do what we told them to do. So I think and, and that's where the slippage is for me. I don't understand why I should believe that. So the, I think there's a couple of things going on. One, this is in some ways two reforms happening at the same time. So it is both a let's change the nature of the fiscal incentives and the way money goes to whom and how much and let's also 
ratchet up the uh, accountability emanating from the federal government. You could just ratchet up the f- accountability emanating from the federal government and not do the other thing. And there's a there's a good argument for doing that. And in fact, in a different context, I would say, yeah, let's definitely do that. Um, we do think the two things go well together because one of the barriers to federal accountability now is both the reality and the perception of the program as a voucher program. Because you can see it both ways. You Just as you could argue plausibly that our direct grant program is effectively a voucher program, I could argue that the voucher program is effectively a direct grant program. It's not like yeah. the students get this money. Yeah. They're, all, they're not all, all that different, essentially. Right. right? Um, yeah. But every time you say, well, we need to hold these, we need to hold low-performing colleges accountable under a voucher program, people say, well, why are you going to penalize the students? Why would you take a student's Pell Grant away just because they were unlucky t- enough to be enrolled in a college that is bad? There's a good response to that, but it's hard to get to that response because of just the sense of who's being penalized. Well, why is it any different? Why, why can't I just say the same thing? You're taking away their per-pupil allocation. You could if you wanted to. I, I'm just saying, like yeah. from a from a. But it's not a, any less vulnerable to that criticism, is what I'm saying. No, that's that's right. Yeah, but I think I think in terms of like making an argument, the 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 just the the structure of funding being understood as support for institutions and thus the accountability falling on institutions helps a lot. I have one more question, and then as official yes. timekeeper, I'm okay. going to say we need to move on to the next topic. Um, right. Let's just talk about this every week. <laughs> <laughs> we will spend the rest of time yeah. arguing about this. And then right. actually, this what you were saying about two reforms at once actually segues well into my question, which is kind of a question that I don't like because I think policy ideas are interesting in and of themselves. But I have a sort of political realism question okay. of like, what would it take? to get this done. And Andrew, I'm curious because you have sort of put forward your own like radical overhaul or at least like dramatic change. Like given the huge amount of rhetoric around cost and quality of the past like six years that terminated and like not even the ability to produce the college rating system for better or worse. Like what would it take for an idea like either of you have proposed to actually make it through Congress? Hmm. I mean, I will say one thing. Um, that is, I think that there's a vulnerability that is underappreciated um, vis-a-vis the proposals to shift from a student-based model to an institution or state-based model. And that is, as much as people love to talk about how need-based programs are underfunded and people ignore them and whatever, granted, Pell Grant, Pell Grant um, uh, the, the maximum Pell Grant was stagnant for a long time, and that's that was that was an issue. But like, it's really hard to ignore the fact that it has grown enormously, right? right. And and there's an argument for that that the population of students who are striving for college is a much more sympathetic population. Than colleges, mm-hmm. and you can and you can argue that that's a lot of the reason why states have actually felt comfortable shifting money away, right? Is because they don't trust that colleges are spending it appropriately or well, right? And so for me, politically, one of the political vulnerabilities here is that yes, um, it's tr- it's true that that universal programs tend to be well liked and really hard to change, which is also a liability, by the way, right? They get locked in and then you can't change them, um, but but. Need-based programs, and especially a need-based program that goes directly to students, I think, to especially to the right side of the aisle, is much more um, palatable than let's spend more money on public organizations in the states that we have we have tr- uh, rightly or wrongly characterized as being wasteful and inefficient, and also. Uh- Ideologically opposite sure. to our, yeah, but, he, but uh, even before yeah. you get there, yeah, right? yeah like, that's, that's also a yeah. concern yeah. that I should no, I think raise in my state's question. I think that's fair. Think I think you know, again, it's it's interesting to get into these into these uh, questions that are almost purely perception based, right? You know, but um, but sure, I mean, Pell Grant is a very popular program. It's it essentially it is essentially an entitlement. It's like ninety percent an entitlement in the sense that it it effectively operates like one. And it's okay, one. the Pell Grant's a popular program that survived by like the skin of its teeth for like three, four years in there. I but mean, I did, don't disagree. Right? It you did, know, I mean, which is, you I mean, know, an I mean, achievement. But like, never, I would, I would survived, tone down. It survived through popular. like, it survived when a lot of other things did yeah. not survive. I mean, it, it yeah. went, it, right? It, the Pell Grant program in a it was time exempt of intense from, fiscal crisis yeah. doubled in size. And was exempt from um, right? uh, whatever, sequestration, mm-hmm. right? Right? So, I mean, was it? Yes. Yeah, it was. It, only because it was mandatory spending, right? Uh, I think at least the mandatory portion. But yeah. I believe, no, I believe right. the other 
they had this category of programs. IDEA was in no, it. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're totally and I think right. Pell was right. in it too. Right. So essentially, what we're arguing is the 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 downsides of the current system are so great that they actually are worth trading away that upside. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I think that's correct. So um, on my on the oh, but I have an answer to your question. Sorry, you yeah, did not. Okay. No, not no, at all. no, I have an answer. I have an answer. Okay. Um, Go. So I think we need to take seriously the fact of the. Um, extent to which free college has, as you said earlier, become a central pillar of the debate in the Democratic primary. So uh, Hillary Clinton's probably going to win this primary. Hillary Clinton's probably going to win the presidential election. Um, Like, it's on some level, if you say something enough during a campaign, you kind of have to do something once it happens. I mean, these things have a weight of them of their own. I mean, you sort of saw this in 2000, right, where George W. Bush made a huge-ass tax cut, a big part of his campaign, mostly because he thought Steve Forbes was going to be his his opponent, and then he wanted to kind of get to the right of Steve Forbes. I, and then he I got elected. Record, I wrote a whole campaign right. promises matter thing at yeah. some point. Like, so, I, I agree with you. So the fact that you have, you know, there's a, 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 a very plausible scenario in which Hillary Clinton is the next president of the United States, having talked an awful lot about free college, coming in, and this, that is happening to match up with a Higher Education Act reauthorization window— um, Combined with a possible down ballot effect of Trump, I think you right. convinced me and, that something might and actually maybe, uh, happen. And maybe, yeah. and also, and so, right. So let's say Trump destroys the party, and the Democrats eke through with a fifty-vote majority, with a, a 50-50 tie majority in the Senate, right? Um, I think they have more than that. So whatever it is, yeah. right? So they so Hard they see that and they say two year window, right? Because if uh, 2018 is bad for the Democrats, right? Terrible. Yeah. So it probably flips back yeah, in two seven. years. Yep. So then everything becomes about negotiating with the House. Everything becomes about about trying to like sit down with Paul Ryan and like work stuff. Like, assuming the House stays with the Republicans, which I guess is the way. Th- I think that's be the forever. same assumption, no matter what. Um, I mean, who knows? I may so, be the one who was like dramatically wrong. In December, and the idea, I think that's the same and so the top five agenda item, and so the idea. So 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 the idea. So the, so so the idea that the House is going to go for Medicaid for higher education seems like really dubious to me. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Okay. But, like, that's where I think we wind up. I actually think this is a topic Sorry. of okay. its own that we should do. Somebody should write it down. We should do it next month. Is okay. Like, Let's do, right. like, predictions in a for Trump, in a, in predictions a Trump nominee world that unless something yeah. crazy happens, right. it seems that yeah. we will be in, like, yeah. effects on Congress and then de facto effects on, on higher education. Yeah. What is what is the Trump phenomenon mean for higher education? Yeah, right. I mean, I guess for, for, for like, Congress, right. by extension. Nothing good. Yeah. Next time. Um Anyway, yeah, we have like 15 what minutes that I wanted about? to get into my, my other. I said, as I said at a panel the other day, this discussion will be moot after November because every university will run with the efficiency of Trump University <laughs> under President Trump. I have a Trump University piece in the works right now. I nice. like you're pouring yourself yeah. another drink. As you're I'm dr- we're finishing this bottle. Okay, all right. All right. So um, moving on to our third topic of the podcast. Um, I'm going later, so. What is going on <laughs> with? Yeah, I actually have a gym appointment at 5:30, but I'm a doing gym a appointment. I'm, so I'm so what is wrong. Okay, with I hurt my I hurt my foot. Do you so, also make appointments to get your haircut? Yes, you yes, do, don't you? you? Have to oh do my god, I hurt my oh foot, my god, and so and so <laughs> I had to find some. I had to, find, I had to find some low impact way to work out. So I signed up for the super expensive yuppie Pilates Jimmy thing in my neighborhood. <laughs> Solid core. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is, I've done it twice. It's horrible. It's, it's like a yeah. medieval torture. It is. They, like, it, is. It, it is. There's one in Old Town. It yeah. is so, it's so hard. great yeah, it's so and hard. awful and great. So I'm doing solid core at 530 today, but okay. I'm still drinking scotch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'm a wimp. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, not scotch. Sorry. Yeah, Irish wow. This wow. Was, that was like an ethnic hate Oh, my gosh. You were kicked off the, Irish the podcast. Off. I'm sorry, Uncle Daniel. You're in the, Grandpa you're Bernard. In the penalty box. My wife went to college in Ireland, and she finds St. Patrick's Day, like, hilarious because... In Ireland, it's not a thing. Right, right And right. Irish people are like, this is really yeah. silly. Why do people behave this I have way? a friend who lives in uh, Krakow, and they have like a, 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 and he's Jewish, and he actually runs the um, uh, Jewish Community Center there. And, I have a lot of follow-up questions. And so they have, a, and it's just story. tiny little, um, uh, because of course, almost all the Jews were killed by either the Germans or the Soviets in the 20th century. There's this tiny little Jewish community there, and that he's sort of working to revive. But there's a huge, like, Jewish culture festival that's very Saint that they have there every year. That's very Saint Patrick's Day ish in the sense that almost no one celebrating it is Jewish, mm-hmm. and it's these kind of caricatures. Man, that's so much darker though. It's oh, these caricatures so of the darker. of the. Yeah. It's a whole um, thing. Yeah, it it's makes super it interesting. Makes okay, well now I want to. Yeah. What time of the year yeah. is it? Right. I want to like write about it. It makes yeah. Saint Patrick's Day feel okay. weird now. I feel yeah. 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 Okay. Now. yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> 
I did read a tweet today that said, I've lost my um, holiday colonialism flashcard, so I forget whether St. Patrick's Day should make me upset. I think it's good still, right? Yeah. Are we still good? Yeah. I, okay. I think it's still good. I, I'll, it's I'll not like Columbus Day or something. Yeah. Right, where you're a bad person if you That's celebrate it. That's a great it, Sopranos no. episode, by yeah. the way. All right. Um, last topic, political science. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of my idea because I have been doing something I have not really done before lately, which is talk to academics and professors about their work and not about them as like actors in a higher education system who are not economists of higher ed, which has been fun. Um, but it's sort of led me to think about the role of political science and sort of academic political science work in the popular imagination and as this campaign gets started. <laughs> Sorry, I took all the rest of the ice. <laughs> My bad. The listeners could hear it. Yeah, it that was okay. Just like just like a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is left over? I'll just take all of it. Go on. I don't know what stereotype that's playing off of. Anyway, um it feels like like as we were going into this campaign, there was this like moment for political science that like Vox and Washington Post and Monkey Cage and a few other places and have Sasha sort of Eisenberg like, Yeah, like really whole, played yeah. into where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, like political science is good and campaign reporters should read more of it. And then it was like no one predicted anything that has happened. Political science is terrible. The party doesn't decide. So is this the party decides thing? It's like, the party decides, but it's like party. everything People else, are, too. It's, it's like, like this moment of being like as wrong as wrong could be. Yeah, like there was this yeah. moment where it's like, oh, like political scientists, scientists are like going to be like economists and like really influential in right. the national discourse. And then like where does what's happened so far leave us, I guess is sort of my my question for the Academic side of higher ed. And for, for, we talk for about our new listeners, um, Andrew has a PhD in political yes, science. That's, that's, and that's, one of my me. professors and good friends um, while in graduate school uh, was one of the co-authors of The Party Decides, okay. David oh, Carroll. Awesome. He's now a professor How is he at feeling? University you, of Maryland. Have you talked to him lately? He's, you know, he's always fun to talk to because yeah. he always he's sort of like, this is why I didn't, this is why it's going this way, this is why it's different. I mean, the, the notion that like, it's a little different. Um, not everybody's like this, but it's a little different from people being like so, so incredibly wedded to their theory Mm -hmm. that they're like going to just like cognitive dissonance all the way to the end and be like, no, it still could happen. Like this guy, like this guy, like the the efficient market people who who say like when the stock market drops 40%, that that's real. Yeah. Like journalists who've bought into the party are more dogmatic than the actual like like authors of the They've made the mistake. And and to be fair, right? Like if you're a betting person in August, right? You don't you don't say that Trump is going to win the nomination. That would be that would be like nonsense, right? And it's because and it's you're sort of off the equilibrium path in some sense. And so the question is: Is this an outlier or is this the way of the future? And it is it is a real question, right? Because meanwhile, right on the other side, it's happening exactly the way they describe, right? Right. Yes. Um, and so that combined with. Um, um, a really, really unique collective action problem on the Republican side this time around, right? Have Which you read like, the theory where it's like everyone read the party decides, and so everyone thought the party would decide, and no yeah. one, no one realized that Nobody like they were the together. party and they needed to do the deciding. Like, yeah, in fact, in fact, it's like a, it's a really good case study in like the the. Should we explain what the party decides is? Yeah, so the party decides is the party decides is a book um, on the presidential nominating process with approximately as many co-authors as there have been um, election cycles post like the McGovern reforms <laughs> in 1972, um, and the basic gist is that um, uh, the primary system. Um, the primary, and it's been a while. I actually read this as part of my class in the Word document version. Was when I read. You were the party a party decides hipster. Yeah, I was into it before it was cool. Right. Um, and uh, it's, but it's been a while. So right. um, before they signed with the major label, yeah, sold out. Right. <laughs> basic notion. Basic notion is that primaries primaries sort of lead us to think that 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 it's actually sort of rank and file voters that are really the deciders in. Um, in presidential nominating contests, but that the party the, that the the party actually plays um, a far more important role than people understand, both in the invisible primary and the period leading up to before anybody votes on anything, and also in the endorsements game. That in, that 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 a lot of a lot of their analysis suggests that endorsements are really really important predictors of later vote share and and later um, um, w- you know primary wins and and nominations. The problem is, of course, there's there just haven't been that many, right? And people forget that, like, you know, I think Hubert Humphrey, I'm trying to remember if Hubert Humphrey won any primaries. He did not. No. no. Right. So like no. that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Right. So like this notion that that this has been the system that's been around for a long time. We have a lot of ways to, like, think about predicting mm-hmm. the outcomes. I mean, that's, I mean, that's why they created the primary system. Right. 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 Essentially, because they're. Yeah. Right. Because there were the 68 was kind of a mess. Right. And and um, 
And that was when Democratic activists protested. Basically, a preview of what's to come in Cleveland, I think, on the Republican side. <laughs> I'm being is, fitted for riot gear, by the way. I yeah, may go. And nice. Literally, the question is like, we can order some riot gear in your size. Do you want to go? So. <laughs> what size pepper spray do you yeah. need? Yeah. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, but side note, like, what does that mean? Like, what would you buy? I think shields. I don't know. My no, editor was no, like, shields, though, right? Know, like, like, head, a, like, like helmet. helmet. helmet? Like, there's a thing that journalists wear sometimes when they cover protests, really? I guess. Bolt, like, huh, bulletproof right? vests. I don't know. And like, okay. a, like a flag jacket and like a blue helmet. I'll like get back, UN to, you a, I'll, I'll get back okay. to you in a couple right. months. I'm like, what it actually entails. Let me know will be appearing at the next Hiring Happy Hour podcast. Anyway, so I think that you are... Um, I think that you are opening comments describing polysire on, very much onto something. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, I did my PhD in the discipline. I think that there are large swaths of it that are so divorced from any kind of blood uh, and flesh, right? And but I mean that is it's just like it's total weird abstraction of like what politics is, right? So it's yeah. so like committee politics are like this game where like you have a proposer and an, and an acceptor, and if the proposer proposes something too close to his ideal point, they reject it. So they strategically do, right, and you're just like. That doesn't sound like Congress to me. I mean, like, mm. on some level it does, this but, is, like... This is the only poli-sci class I took in college. I think yeah. there were a lot of numbers involved, and, like, it was terrible, and I clearly yeah. should have started with something else. It does really... I mean, it really does help to explain certain things, right? Like, why, when you have a switch in uh, the presidency, do presidents tend to have, like, this window of opportunity to make things happen? People say, oh, it's because they won an election, they have a national mandate. But actually, it's because... Right. Flipping from one party to the other actually opens up space on like preferred policies that a big swath of Congress would like to see passed, but they can't because of veto threat. Right. Mm -hmm. So like there is like a mechanical aspect. So like that's been that's very helpful. Um, But uh, but generally, um, I will say this. I think that the the stuff that Sasha profiles in his book, Sasha Eisenberg has this book called The Victory Lab. And it's all about how campaigns actually started to learn from science. Yeah, um, like I almost don't think of that as political science. Yeah. I think of that as like data science and analytics yeah. and not like it is science that is political, yeah, but, but it is not like political science. But that's like Don, but like Don science, Green. You know? Don Green is at the heart of that book, the guy who was yeah. wrapped up in that right, core right, right. scandal yeah. oh, we sure, talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But Don, so when Ted Cruz sent out that mailer that said, You're, hey, yeah, everybody yeah. votes in your neighborhood and you should vote because they know that you didn't. That's right out of yeah. poli-sci experiments. I mean, as a lay person, I mean, I was a poli-sci matter major in undergrad, but that means literally nothing to this discussion. So just to be clear about that. Um, uh, I'm always, I feel like I've now read enough news stories, sort of ex post fashion news stories where they go and talk to the, the professional campaign staff on the winning side. And they're like, wow, we did some crazy cool stuff with like data analytics. And the reporter doesn't really understand anything about that. And that gets sort of like credulously reported. Like we can figure out, we can micro target, we can do this. I'm now a little skeptical because I sort of feel like, like I want to read the story about the losing side that right. did all the same stuff and right. why. It didn't oh man, work. it was called Orca. It's insane. You should. Right. Orca. Um, okay. Yeah. Right. It was oh, yeah. the Republican mm-hmm. side. Yeah. You and should I read think, all that. And I think like, Marco Rubio. The stuff that's coming out about Marco Rubio vis-a-vis Ted Cruz is very is very um, sort of uh, enlightening on that on that front too. Cruz Rubio didn't do anything. Cruz right? has like, invested tons yeah. of money and time in that stuff in the analytics. And Rubio's campaign, from what you're reading, from what I'm reading, suggests they didn't. Right? Mm-hmm. They relied. They were actually more of a party decides kind right. of model. They totally right. Yeah. They got these top level endorsements, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and he's they wound like, up not talk counting radio for much, right? and like, yeah. yeah, in the like media, it was that was a fascinating. Like, and it just didn't work. Yeah. Like we knew that everyone had data, but it was expensive, mm-hmm. and we thought we would do this this like other cheaper way. And yeah. Like, I wonder why that didn't work out for you. Yeah. You know, like. The story of polysize really the story of polysize kind of like epistemology of the la- over the last like thirty years that was really interesting, right? It started out as like the the ex- the description back then was uh, soak and poke, right? So like academics would come to Washington and they would like hang around in Congress and they would like interview members of Congress and they would interview senators, right? Um, and so there's these great old books like Richard Fenno, who's one of the better known political scientists, wrote this book called Home Style, right? And it was all about how members have this style that they adopt when they go home, which is very different from their Washington oh, DC persona, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it actually like still, you read it and you're like, oh, this is so true, mm-hmm. right? And then in the in sort of the seventy late seventies eighties right the sort of um, formal theory kind of public choice revolutions happening in economics and this it's almost like you can almost d- sort of date it to this like cohort of people at Caltech who were who were who became political scientists and they were like oh we're going to adopt formal theory to think about like all of these things right like congressional committees and policymaking and um, strategic voting and, you know, all, all these different kind of like 
problems that we that we that we used to study in ways where we just ask people, right? And then it turned to this like deductive science where you'd like deduce testable hypotheses and then test them. And I think that's you know there was a big kind of divide in political science, right? Older school professors really th felt that this stuff was less, the newer stuff was less informative. And I think where we've gotten to now is we've left, we haven't quite left the deductive stuff and the form of theory behind, but the experimental revolution has come to poli sci. Mm. Yeah, it's and, like so and, quantitative. It's like, yeah. yeah. But now we're actually saying like, well, how can we mm. control for, you know, how can we set up this controlled environment where we tell people one thing and this other group of people gets a different message and then we see if they decide differently, right? Which is like, it's not, it's medical trials. It's yeah. all the stuff we talk about in education policy. And I think that's been really valuable. Absolutely, yeah. Um, sort of like the middle. So mm -hmm. there isn't the, how I came up with this was I wrote yesterday about um, Supreme Court ideology scores on the theory that I do nothing about this. But when I know nothing about it, I know the dumb questions to ask and I'm, I'm decent at figuring out who to call. Because there were these sort of two competing um, systems, like one of which said that Merrick Garland, like this is all related to the Supreme Court, like that Garland would be basically on the left and would be like slightly to the left of Elena Kagan, which was totally not, you know, the, the public How perception of him. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and the other one, which sort of like lined up much better with public perception, which was that he would be pretty far to the left of Kennedy, but to the right of every liberal on the court, um, which was like much closer to sort of the, the, the pitch and also the like general idea of him going back to the 90s. And so the question we started with was, like, why is there this discrepancy both between them and between the, like, public perception and the political science? It turns out that, like, I don't know, this is probably in politics, but, like, the political science of at least one of them seemed really dumb, which was, like, relying on the ideology of the home state senator who had a chance to veto them but didn't through this odd Senate procedure process Um and basically ended up saying, like, well, because these home state senators didn't veto them, their ideologies must be very close. And so we will act as if that senator were being put on the court. Mm -hmm. um, huh. with, with Garland, it was even weirder because he didn't have a home state senator. He lived in the District of Columbia. So um, and so it was Clinton. And so literally, yeah. like, that, that one that showed him to the left of Kagan was yeah. like, if we put Bill Clinton <laughs> on the Supreme Court in 1995, like, this is where he would fall. Which, in fairness to the political scientists, they were probably, like, aghast at how people were using it. Oh, totally. Like, and in fact, the, the New York, York Times, Times literally misdescribed it. I yeah. called them and it was like, why? I called the political scientists and was like, why? And they were like, because the New York Times didn't describe it correctly. And yep. I was like, oh, okay, cool. No, I, had that correct, I had to correct friends. Like, I had to correct friends. I mean, I had to correct friends on Facebook and be like, yeah. hey, guys, uh, read the correction. Because they were like, centrist? Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Uh, and I'm like, just read the corrections the measurement's wrong so even, like even the other one was like, it was like based on clerks and it was based on like who your yeah. clerks are politically donating to which like it's probably closer it's but it's good. like i mean it, it just seemed to me like i'm for quantification i'm in favor of data like i'm in favor of like empirically knowing things but there is a point where like reducing something to like a point on a spectrum or to a number is like yeah. actually conceals more than it illuminates well, all of so just as a point of reference all all of the discussion about political polarization, partisan yeah. polarization, is, where, is, is based, based on, on the these same models. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Not, these models. The models I think are it makes a little more different. sense for Congress than it does for the Supreme yeah. Court, to be honest. Because like, yeah. like Congress, like I don't know if I'm voting for a member of Congress, like where they fall yeah. on this like general spectrum is very important to me. It's really cool, by the way. You can go back if you go to Vote View, which is the site run by um, Keith Poole and Howard Rosenthal. They have they have um, generated ideological ideology scores. Um, on two dimensions, the second dimension tended to be like racial politics and uh, race and regionalism. Race right? and regionalism, yeah. yeah. All the way back to the first Congresses. So you, oh, like, you want to look up like super, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you want to go like look up like where John Quincy Adams fell on like the <laughs> ideological spectrum. Go look. Yeah. I think it's really cool. I yeah. think I think the Supreme Court is it's like where it cool. errors because the Supreme Court is basically like the single voter, single issue voters, like paradise. Like if, you know, like literally. The, the idea of litmus test for a Supreme Court is being a single issue voter and like knowing where a person falls generally on the ideolo right. ideological spectrum is a lot less helpful in that context of like setting precedent, like expanding jurisprudence than it is of like they're going to show up to Congress, they're going to vote 20,000 times. Mm -hmm. and, like what really matters to me is like what the average of those votes end up being. Yeah, I think that's that's right. They're, the the court tends to be very different deliberative. They don't. It's they do do they do have up or down votes, but it's different, right? They sort of like it's not it's a different kind of exercise. But yeah. and I was um, I was like going somewhere with that anecdote, which is like what I what I took away from it was like political science is a descriptive science, like a lot of science that like journalism mm -hmm. has decided to turn into a prediction science, mm -hmm. and like shockingly, that does not always. I think go it all that well. I think it depends on which branch you're talking about. Yeah. So so if you're talking about say when the Ted Cruz mailer goes out, yes. right? Yeah, that, that you can seems, go back and yeah. you can go back and read the studies and say, oh wow, I bet he got a few voters 
on this on the basis of this, even though it was sort of weird and, and inappropriately phrased and whatever, right? But um, PolySci has gotten a lot of trouble for this actually, because because people are now saying that these experiments are meddling. Right, you're messing with state, elections in yeah. state level politics. Um, so there's a big one. There was like a nonpartisan election, I think. Montana, it was like justices, Montana, right? It was it was for justices, justices yeah. for state supreme court justices, and a couple of poli sci professors sent around a partisan prime, right? Because you can kind of tell what party uh, somebody is, even though it's nonpartisan. Yeah. And they got in like the uh, Montana Secretary of State was like, "This is like not good with us." You know, why? You, who gave you the right to do this? So there is like controversy because you're kind of manipulating. There is like an ex- to the extent you're manipulating. They, the they got that past IBR. Yeah, well, they yeah they got past IBR because I think I think the assumption IRB sorry IRB sorry yeah. IBR Guys. yeah, yeah. <laughs> IRB yeah it's been a long day that was yeah. amazing. already. Um, uh, I think the assumption was probably like, well, yeah, you're you're obviously like clearing this with the powers that be, right? <laughs> about um, about what you're trying to test. Did you guys but, read the? the IRB thing in the Chronicle last week about the guy who's in trouble. So a a professor decides to, um, uh, he's mad because he's an education school professor Mm -hmm. and he's mad because of all of these fake conferences that will take any proposal. Like they're all in vacation destinations, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this whole industry, there's this whole fake conference industry where there, there are no academic standards, any proposal accepted as long as your check clears. And he's seeing like these, things show up on resumes, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, this is fraud. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he conducts a sting. He designs a sting, which is to cr- create a nonsensical proposal and send it off to, like, you know, I've done a quantitative analysis of four people, you know, and, it, you know, something like right, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sends them off to, like, 15 of these of these uh, uh, places. He runs it through his institutional IRB board, mm-hmm. and they reject it because they say it is an undue risk of harm to the organizers who are being stung, right? You know, so like, yeah. like you even though you need IRB approval for a state, yeah, you need huge. IRB approval for every goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it is crazy. Well, this is probably like should be its own subject. We could get Steve Tellis in here to talk about this. Yeah. And so what he did was he they rejected it. He went to an independent IRB board, which you can do now. Yeah. And so they approved it. He did the study, but now he's not going to get to publish it, and he's being sanctioned by his college. For going around that, but but let's think about that. They rejected it because he was exposing fraud, and it would be bad for the, <laughs> the fraud, human the subjects, the fraudsters. Yeah, yeah, literally, and and they're unapologetic about this. They're not, they're not pretending it's something else. No, That's no, no, insane. It's yeah. uh, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, agitation for reform of of that of that process. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, it's like a lot of other things on university campuses. They are extremely risk averse. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this is about. This is the same, it's the same thing on, you know, any number of, uh, uh, issues that they deal with where they're like, Nope, we're going to, we're going to, you know, just like, we're going to sort of overreact. Right. To make sure that, to make sure that we're entirely in compliance with anything you could possibly throw at us. Right. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion. Uh, thanks, guys. Under an hour. This is like three times in a row we've stayed on schedule. I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, thanks to all the listeners out there. You're you can, welcome. You can... Thank you, Libby. Um, thank you, Libby, for making your way over here. Um, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the good ones, I believe. Um, thank you, as always, to the great staff here at the New American Production Office for producing this podcast. Um, thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.